What makes a great product? Is it the hand-finished glaze on a vase? The artistry of the label on a drinks bottle? Is it the knowledge that it came from a heritage brand with the best skills in the business, or that it was made sustainably within one country? We appreciate the items that we know have had the hands of a great craftsman or woman on them more than those that came off a factory conveyor belt. And after a period of fast fashion and mass production, it seems the customer is even more aware of where and how their things are created. This is Made in France, a celebration of the rich tradition of French craftsmanship and innovation in manufacturing. This is a country full of ateliers, workshops and schools creating at such a high level that designers from around the world seek out their expertise. Each week we'll be travelling across France to speak to designers, chefs, winemakers, teachers, milliners, ceramicists and plenty more who are making beautifully crafted items. I'm your host, Gillian Tobias. We begin this week's programme in eastern France, where we find Manufacteur de Diguin. Since 1875, this pottery factory has employed hundreds of people in its picturesque setting. But when the business went under, former marketing specialist Corinne Jourdain stepped in to raise funds to save it. In 2014, she transformed it into makers of beautifully crafted contemporary kitchen and gardenware, retaining the artisanal processes of the original workshop. Monocle Sophie Grove went along to Manufacteur de Diguin to meet some of the people who work there. Hi, Hi Corinne. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Lovely to. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, my name is Corinne Jourdain Gros. I am CEO of Manufacture de Diguin in Burgundy. Corinne, we're sitting in your office surrounded by beautiful glazes, ceramics in this wonderful region of France. I wanted to ask you firstly about the history of, of this factory. When you walk in the gates, you sort of feel the layers of time. Do you have a little bit of information on where it all started here? It's a very, very old factory uh, because at the origin, it's a family uh, business founded in 1875 at Diguin. In this region, there, is, there were a lot of, lot of um, ceramic factory who produce uh, pots, uh, jars, uh, and uh, types. This is a principal uh, workshop. And uh, for example, uh, here uh, it's after a cook, uh, mustard jar, we must put a logo. There are hundreds and hundreds of pink, pinky purpley mustard pots here, <laughs> destined for my. It's a very manual process. Yes. Yes. It's a surprisingly manual process. Yes. Fatima is doing each one by hand, each label. But it's, it's lovely to think of um, French families going back to a time where they had one beautiful mustard pot yes. on the table that they yes. replenished yes. all the time rather than buying a new one. Yes, yes, of course. So these are the archives, <laughs> the living archives. It's a whole table of very brown, 
very handsome, but it's not the myriad of colors we see in Next Door. Um, tell me about this original Dijon collection. This is a traditional collection in brown. At the origin, the founder created two, two, two clay, uh, stoneware clay and pottery clay. And why uh, he created two clay? It's an it's a economic reason and a market reason. They would like to develop two markets, professional market for food and uh, mustard, for example, and uh, uh, charcutier and uh, uh, fromager. And another market, it's for um, grand public market and with pottery clay. And the difference between the two clay is the resistance and the composition. For the professional, it's stoneware uh, clay with uh, natural material and they mix and the difference is uh, very, uh, there is no porosity. It's non-porous uh, clay and very resistant clay. And it's the reason why this, um, these uh, products uh, was uh, used by professionals to conserve and to preserve food. And in uh, eight, 1970, they lost uh, a very important market of food market because all the professionals use plastic. We're in this room of amazing professional products. There are bowls for the charcuterie. There are incredible jars, beautiful pots for vinegar. This stoneware was used in everything. It was used to store powder in the First World War. It was used for all sorts of preserving where we now see plastic potentially used. But it does have a, a, a lot of strong, resilient properties. Um, you're holding, a, a, it looks like a cup, but actually it was used for cheese. Yes. This uh, cup was developed in uh, 1960. It's for a, a big brand uh, in the blue cheese, Roquefort Société. And at the origin, when they produce uh, this cheese, they have a lot of um, déchets. And after, an engineer develop a, a cream, a blue cheese cream. And they want to put this blue cheese cream in a container. And they contact factory. And they develop the tumbler. And the particularly is stoneware clay and it's good to conserve because we cook high level temperature it's uh, 1300 and it's the reason why when you put cheese blue cheese inside there is no uh, no smell no uh, transmission and after consumer can use the tumbler to uh, to uh, to drink uh, coffee or tea or yes and the story is, uh, 10 years after, the uh, manufacturer de Digoin found the market because of price. It was, the price was too expensive. 
And the brand, Roquefort Société, uh, decide to produce a new uh, tumbler in Spain. But in Spain, there is no stoneware clay. There is only pottery clay. And the difference, pottery, it's a porous clay. And you put in a tumbler blue cheese, it was very, very hard because uh, smell and you can, it's not possible to use tumbler after. A cheesy tumbler afterwards is <laughs> not pleasant for coffee. It's difficult to describe um, some of your products, but it's a wonderfully sort of solid stoneware that has that sense of old France, but then occasionally there's a beautiful, vibrant yellow or pineapple-shaped jug, some incredible glazes. Tell me about the process of taking the know-how, taking the glazes and the technical skills you found here and then bringing you know, a sense of the contemporary. We fabric uh, our stoneware with uh, natural materials from France exclusively, argile from uh, Burgundy, another material from uh, Bretagne, Britain, and uh, from uh, south of Paris. It's very important because we transform all the materials to uh, fabrics our stoneware. It's a special uh, stoneware and particular stoneware from factory. And after we, uh, we handmade all the product. And it's, it's very important because all the uh, artisan who uh, works here from a long time and they, they have a know-how uh, particularly important for this sort of uh, product. In France, all the people uh, know the, the, the type of product because uh, in a long time, their family used this particular product and it's a memory of our story. The signature for today is to transform not the form but the color for a contemporary um, approach. We develop a collection for Conrad Shop, Habitat, and uh, our collection sold in a concept store in Paris and uh, in the USA. So this machine is different in the sense that the solid clay is, is, is put inside the mold and then a machine is used to, to sort of secure it inside yes. the mold. Mm. Yes. It's different. It's a, it's a, we, we, have, we use two techniques in ceramics, calibrage, and the other technique is coulage. Okay. Calibrage is the technique used with uh, solid clay and coulage with liquid clay. It's different because this is round form and for coulage it's another form. It's very much man and machine yes. because even though there's a machine involved, it's very much the artisan that's, that's sort of conducting it and using his skill and his eye to actually be sure that the product's going to turn out very well. Yes, yes. What was the state of the factory when you arrived economically? Was it thriving? It had this very different client professionals, as you say, 
very different glazes, browns, um, beiges, the really kind of um, iconic bowls that you'd see in, in the professional kitchen. But was it doing well or did you have to revive it economically? When I arrived, we developed a first collection, new collection, and uh, we present at uh, Maison et Objet Fair. It was a revelation because all the customers who came on the, at Maison et Objet discovered Manufacture de Digoin. The, the advantage is that Manufacture de Digoin uh, have a big uh, notoriety and all the people know Manufacture de Digoin, the old product, and they discover the new product. Enfin, the old product revisited with a new color, with a new concept and new image. And for me, it's very important that the, the product uh, reflects the factory because you are in the building, a very old building at the origin. And uh, today we have a prestigious customer and a re retailer. I think the success is because of notoriety of Manufacture de Digoin, because of stoneware. It's a unique. And we are the last of uh, this uh, sort of uh, product. In France, we are the last. Let's hop across the country to visit this week's atelier. So far on this series, we've been snooping around the studios of some of the top French ateliers that work with La Maison Chanel. We spent a lot of time on the periphery of Paris, but now we head to Pau in the southwest of the country. Here we find Act 3, the people who are responsible for weaving Chanel's signature tweeds. We meet Maria Mesner to find out more about their workshop and what it means to be in this rural location. The important thing here is that a uh, long time ago it was a textile centre, but they did fabrics not for clothes, more for decoration. And I tried to find textile worker to work with me and also to buy the old machines because the old machines, they work like we uh, need. They stop when I say stop and they go ahead if uh, I need to go fast or even very fast. We are here in Po in south of France because here life is quiet. Everything is beautiful, the mountains are beautiful, and it's the best way to create, to do uh, this job, because you have, we have to be uh, quiet to do uh, this busy, difficult job. And it would not be possible for me to be in Paris, because everything is very fast. We have done nearby 300, 400 uh, different fabrics since 20 years. For me it's very important to do uh, handmade, handcrafted uh, fabrics because it's uh, the only way to 
stay creative and I think actually the whole world is looking for not so fast and not so cheap uh, things. The last uh, development was um, called Golden Pharaon, was from the Egyptian-inspired show, and it was uh, really very, very difficult and interesting in the same time, because we had to use stripes, bring them together with fantasy yarns, a lot of metallic uh, yarns, and the, the stripe fabric, which we have to cut in three different sizes, before cut them, we had to do a hand painting that uh, it looks a little bit more uh, older and more Egyptian uh, design. For us, it was very interesting because the design was really not easy to weave. At the end, we had to put also sequins in, and it's not so easy to weave a sequins. It took a lot of time, but it's uh, one of the most difficult fabrics we even have done. We did it! <laughs> Back to the city we go now to look at some of the businesses that thrive off customers' love for craft. From the retailers selling creative tools to the dry cleaners responsible for the upkeep of a beloved item of clothing. Colette Davidson reports from Paris. A wander through La Droguerie is like being a kid in a candy shop. Glass bottles filled with multicolored beads, buttons, plastic flowers, and tassels line the walls of this craft shop in the center of Paris. Knitting needles hang at the ready. It's tantalizing enough to make any craft phobe want to spend their next weekend DIYing. We have braided ribbon, elastics, and cord, and then we have lots of flowers and feathers, everyone loves feathers, and tiny glass beads too, which can be used to make things for kids or to complete a bracelet or necklace. That's Valentine Massimi, the manager of La Droguerie, which has been open near the Le Halle shopping complex since 1975. She says there's an increasing trend towards craft instead of buying things directly from the store. People want to personalize their items. They can choose the color, the accessories, or if they saw something in a store window but one of the items was missing, we can help create it. Other people enjoy making jewelry. They come here with an idea to make something and we can help them customize it. The result is you have your own piece of unique jewellery that you made yourself. It's a personal satisfaction. That's something that shopper Elizabeth Desroches can relate to. A Canadian living in France, she's made crafts and creativity her life's work. Well, it's a bit deeper for me because I've done a lot of research on creativity, and for me it's actually putting your own essence into what you're making, as opposed to buying it mass-produced, because it's more you, especially if you're doing jewelry or clothing, because it's really showing who you are and representing your personality, which you can't really find off the rack. There's also a demand here for items made in France. La Droguerie offers more than 100 colors of yarn, all of which is dyed in the west of the country near Nantes. And all of its ribbon, whether braided, flowered, or cross-stitched, is made in France. 
Massimi says this French touch is part of its appeal, especially abroad. In fact, La Droguerie has five stores located across Japan. Well, they have a tradition of craftsmanship in Japan, and in parallel, France is the country for fashion. It's where many of the high-end fashion houses are. So when something is made in France, it really attracts the Japanese. Whether it's fashion or food, it's cultural. Irons fizz and spit on the second floor of the Tenturerie Germaine, a dry cleaning and leather dyeing shop located near the Champs-Élysées. One woman tackles the delicate pleats of a pale purple designer dress. Thierry Joubertex usually works downstairs dyeing leather, but first he's showing me the dry cleaning section of the shop. Several floor-length designer gowns hang in plastic in the back room. Uh, what is this one now? 1957 model, a Christian Dior model. It's beautiful. It's white with sort of some ruffles and pink flowers. Yeah. Everything is stitched, cross-stitched by hand, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's uh, very difficult to clean it because the fabric is fragile. Protecting and preserving high-quality items is something La Teinturerie Germaine has been doing since it opened its doors in 1912, just two years after the Chanel fashion house was launched. That connection is part of why so many luxury brands and owners of haute couture pieces trust this shop with their most prized items. I think they are unique and uh, it's uh, like a piece of art and uh, just like shelter or painting or it's uh, very unique and uh, I think it's a part of French art uh, manner. There is still uh, haute couture uh, here in France but uh, there is also pret-à-porter and you, you, you can see really the difference of uh, the way of making and the quality is uh, very very different. And it's uh, to do a dress like that, uh, we need uh, uh, um, very uh, sp uh, specific employees. It's uh, very rare now to, and uh, it's important to transmit the savoir-faire for this kind of uh, art. La Teinturerie Germaine certainly knows something about savoir-faire. They're especially known around town for their leather dyeing services. The main floor of the shop is where all the magic happens. There it's uh, one of these bags is uh, already uh, done. And this looks like, is that Chanel? It's uh, Chanel one. It was uh, already dark, but uh, come on, very worn out there. Worn out on the corners. All over. Uh, you dyed it all over. Was yeah. it black before and now it's still black, but just a, a better quality? Yeah, we hope. <laughs> it, it looks pretty perfect to me. Yes. And it looks like you have a pair of green high-heeled boots uh, here as well, special. leather we, boots. We have to change the color for it. It's for a movie. Oh, really? Virgins uh, for tomorrow. Okay, so they were green and now they're they're blue. Yeah, they are, they are, they are green and now they are blue to be a, a sort with a, a dress or something like that. I don't know exactly, but the color is this one and we have to make it on the, the shoes. Is this typical for you to have these celebrity clients coming to you? Yes, 
because here we are maybe uh, one of the only uh, shots maybe in Paris and maybe in France that we, we can do uh, the same color. That's why uh, for the leather, for example, uh, if you have a stain, we can remove the stain on the leather. We have to pass over with uh, and dye it to remove it. That's the only way. So we need to make the same color. If not, we must dye all over this, the dress or the shoes. But if you want to make just on the stain, make the, uh, the same color. People want to preserve their clothes because they are luxury clothes or they have a sentimental value because it's a cost to do it. Preserving the craftsmanship of high-quality items is just as important for La Tinturerie Germaine today as it was the day it opened. Germaine Le Seche worked at the age of 14 here in 1936. And uh, she is still alive and she went in once a week to see uh, our employees and... Uh, She's uh, 95 years old now. For Monocle in Paris, I'm Colette Davidson. To end the program each week, we hear from various Monocle staff about the French products they love. This week, Monocle's associate producer, Augustin Machelare, tells us about his favorite hat, the Arpenteur Cahor cap that his mother gave him for Christmas one year. Would you call that a flat cap? My friend asked me the other day, to my horror, the flat cap is to the English what the beret is to the French, I suppose. The hat in question, though indeed French, is neither. I'd never wear a flat cap or a beret, because to do so would be deeply inauthentic. Each comes wrapped in a network of cultural associations that have absolutely nothing to do with me. The hat in question is a boiled wool peaked cap named after the city of Cahors in southern France, designed by French workwear supremos Arpenteur and made domestically in a factory that's apparently been churning out similar things for the best part of 70 years. The hat is either black or very dark navy, I'm afraid I can't tell and I'm not that interested, and it cleverly references contemporary streetwear at the same time as channeling a certain timelessness. It offers a practical solution to bracing winter winds. A flap folds down over the ears and the nape of the neck. I rarely wear it like this, however. For one thing, I prefer a scarf, and for another, a different friend said something uncomplimentary when she saw me with the flaps down. I got the hat for Christmas from my mum. It was too expensive to buy for myself. There was no doubt in my mind that I wanted this hat, but I doubted spending the money on it. The same price as a pair of jeans for an item of clothing listed as an accessory, an afterthought not a core wardrobe staple. In addition, I've always been wary of the way a hat can bind itself to identity, or vice versa. Wear one regularly, and before long, you're a hat guy. I have myself experienced this before. A hat that migrates from accessory to staple soon becomes essential. Without it, a wearer begins to feel naked, unshielded and self-conscious, as though hair were an intimate part, which I suppose is how cowboys feel. My Arpenteur boiled wool Cahor cap has not yet come to define my identity and will not because I'm not a teenager anymore. But that's not to say it hasn't drawn comment. Hats, I've discovered, draw comment like no other item of clothing, which I guess speaks to their status as accessory. Accessorizing is decorative, not necessary, so I suppose it's reasonable to infer that choosing to wear one is a statement. I've been told I look like a railway worker and a militant leftist which is ironic because, as I said, it's neither a flat cap nor a beret. 
and it goes a little way towards putting me off the hat. The main attraction of the hat, for me, was the sublime collision of the past and the present in its design and through the process of its manufacture. But I hold on to these slurs because they give me some distance and guarantee that it never becomes an essential. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Made in France. Join us next week when we'll be roaming around the country in search of more great artisanship. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and Tom Edwards and our thanks to Daphne Azar and Sophie Grove. I'm Gillian Tobias. Thanks for listening. Thank you.